You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Brandon Blewett. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, May 15th, 2023. Later in the program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Bill Brown in the second part of an interview with the eco-architect. More in today's feature report. It's just a wonderful feeling that you can't explain it, but when you get it, it's something that you gotta keep feeling because <laughs> it makes you feel so good. Marianne Iria is flying high on the rush of a live performance with the Monroe County Civic Theater, our community's only all-volunteer nonprofit theater group. They're about to launch their annual Shakespeare in the Park, and we'll hear all about it later in the show on a new episode of Activate, featuring real people working for positive change in our community. But first, your local headlines. During the May 9th meeting of the Bloomington Board of Public Works, the board heard a resolution to remove a structure within the public right-of-way at 431 East Wiley Street. Transportation technician for the city, Michael Stewart, explained the resolution. Uh, We received a complaint about a structure, a shed that's uh, placed at 431 uh, East Wiley Street. This is within a section of unimproved right-of-way, which is approximately 36 feet wide. Uh, The shed is essentially right in the middle of this unapproved right-of-way. Currently, there are no utilities that the engineering department has been able to identify. The shed is placed approximately 15 feet from the edge of the property. Uh, Per state code, the Board of Public Works has the ability to order the removal of the shed. So given that engineering department's first approach is to send a letter of request to the property owner, asking for the removal of the structure within the right-of-way. That letter was sent on April 5th, 2023. Uh, And per the the note in that letter, should it not be removed by April 9th, we would be asking for it to be removed uh, from the board. And uh, I believe that's all that I have. I'm happy to answer any questions. Public Works Director Adam Wasson recommended the board not take any formal action and to listen to the parties involved. Um, We've been having a lot of internal discussions um, amongst staff about this particular location and the request um, for the removal of the structure and uh, what the original intent of the right-of-way is, what the current status of the right-of-way is. Um, What I'm going to recommend for this evening is I know we have some interested parties in the room. Um, uh, You know, we have Mike and and the staff report he's given. Um, I'm going to recommend that we not take any formal action tonight, but just hear, uh, allow anyone that wants to offer some comments to enter those into the public record, give staff some more time to really review the whole situation, see what um, what compromises, what alternatives, what, what exists out there for us to try to figure out. Um, as is stated in one of the letters, I think the shed's been in this particular location for 30-some years. Um, you know, not that it's permissible um, by code and uh, in, in <clears throat> the most uh, uh, strict reading of code, but at the same time, there's there's a lot of history here, and we want to uh, allow anyone that has comment to offer that to the board tonight. But um, my recommendation is more than likely going to be that we not take any formal action and that we allow some more time for this topic to be discussed. So, Stewart elaborated on the request to remove the structure on East Wiley Street. 
Uh, I reached out to Cleaning and Transportation Department, some of their staff members, on how they handle parking on unimproved surfaces. The crux of this issue, as I understand it, is there's current uh, one of the neighbors would like to be able to access a boat that is parked in the in their backyard. According to the uh, UDO Unified Development Ordinance. Uh, Struck or vehicles must, including boats, must be parked on an improved surface. Uh, typically, planning would view just having gravel under that as improvement. Uh, the question was, does it need to have a driveway or any other improved right-of-way access to be able to get to it? Uh, according to planning staff, when I spoke with them today, that is typically not a requirement. Uh, ultimately, what they'd want to see is a site plan, and I think things get approved or denied on case-by-case -case measuring everything up. Uh, but typically, no, it would not. Something like an unimproved right-of-way would not hinder the approval of that. During public comment, the resident of the property in question said the shed had been on the property since the 1980s. Uh, my wife and I own the property at 431 East Wiley, and we own the shed, the structure that's on the easement to the east of our property. Uh, we have uh, lived at that location since the mid-80s. Uh, the shed has been on that location since the mid-80s, approximately 40 years. Uh, the, Grass easement uh, that uh, goes to the alley from uh, the Wiley Street uh, south uh, has been maintained by us. We've maintained a pathway for people going through from First Street to Wiley. Uh, even though for them to exit, they have to come up on our property. This has never been an issue. Uh, as far as it goes for the shed and maintenance of the shed, uh, we're willing to move the shed uh, we're unwilling to see that grass easement that hasn't been driven on in 40 years be driven on. Uh, it, uh, uh, driving from First Street uh, towards Wiley, uh, it's the lower part of the property. Uh, I submitted some pictures. I don't know whether those have been made available to you or not. But you see there's a collection of considerable amount of water down in that area. It's just our feeling that any sort of driving on uh, the grassed area, any sort of parking in that area is just going to continue to create a deterioration of the property. And uh, i uh, be more than happy to ask, answer any questions that you might have. But uh, uh, as I said, we'd be more than willing to move the shed if that, if we understand it's on city property. We just would, would hate to see that property deteriorate by a vehicle being driven on it or vehicles parked down in that area. A neighboring resident requested that the shed be moved by about six feet, saying that she's unable to access the back of her property as a result of the structure. Our, our property abuts this, this area of question and we are unable to access the back of our property um, uh, currently. Um, and I have a, a sunfish sailboat, which is about 18 feet long, very light, but um, the trailer is an older one. It's a little bit heavy, so we can't manually like negotiate it. So in order to get it out in a flat area, we would have to go around the shed onto the Shook's property, and we don't want to do that. So we asked that they move the shed. So I'm surprised that I heard he would move it, because that's all we would like, is just to have it moved. We don't require any, or we're not asking for any improvements on that, any upgrades, any type of change to that access. Um, we have a couple of vehicles that 
I would just back in and um, grab the boat and take it out and take it back. It's not going to be, we, we don't have any need to park back there. Um, we just need to be able to get in and out to our the gravel pad or whatever where we're going to have the um, the boat. So it, it seems like the, um, the traffic would be minimal. And um, we certainly, we've, We've been there about four years, I think, now, and really beautified um, the property. It had been vacant for a long time, and we intend to keep it really beautiful and um, not inconvenience anyone. But so if it were moved, I think, 10 feet, about 10 feet over, if it were moved even 10 feet, that would probably be fine. Public Works Director Adam Wasson asked for clarification on how the nearby resident would use the public right-of-way if the structure were removed. So would your intention be to drive vehicles on the, on, on the grass and in, in the areas that do collect the water? Um, actually, or would you be able to, or would you be, let me, sorry, uh, would you be putting vehicles on that unimproved right away, or would you be pulling the boat to it and then maneuvering it back? Um, say that again? I'm trying to just figure out if you're going to actually have to drive vehicles regularly on the grass area that's unimproved, or if you'll be just pulling up to that area and then, tr like, manually moving the boat back oh, to where you Oh, well, uh, we don't care either way. I mean, if, if we could park the, the boat on the... I'm going to call it an alley. I know that's not the correct term, but <laughs> right. you know that in unimproved the area... Right okay, mm -hmm. that, um, I'd be ha happy to to pull to leave the boat there and have our little pad there and just you know zoom in and mm -hmm. and not even park the truck there yeah. you know it's just we we have parking in the front but we can't get down to the back so either that or just driving over that and it would probably be a total of i don't know maybe a dozen times a year very minimal if we did drive across that and we could we could put gravel on it too if that would help <clears throat> thank you Okay, so was I clear about the Yes, yeah, I was trying to figure out if the vehicle, if a car would actually have to be on the grass, unimproved right-of-way, or if you would just be manually moving the boat trailer with human power in that area. Well, no, okay. I, we couldn't manually. Got it's it. too heavy because Got I'm the main sailor in the family, so I would be doing it by myself. It. So That's I need to smart. back up the trailer, hook it onto the boat, and then take it out. But I don't care where that is. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I don't know if I, if I park in the alley and get used to it and the shooks leave, then I won't be able to do that. <laughs> yep. So we don't. What I'm going to suggest to the board is that we do table this for the evening. Um, I'll commit to myself going out more. I'll be happy to meet you on site. Really, truly understand exactly where we're talking about, see what compromises could possibly exist here. Um, it is not our intent. I don't know that you'll receive a, a public work support um, to the board to drive vehicles in that low area um, or not. I, I really want to come out and see exactly how you would need to maneuver before we would make, before I'd be comfortable making a recommendation to the board, um, given the long history. Here. The board voted unanimously to table the item for a future meeting in order to investigate the resolution further. The Board of Public Works will meet again on May 23rd. In today's feature report, environmental correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Bill Brown in the second part of an interview with the Eco-Architect. In today's segment, they discuss the cost-benefit analysis of solar energy, addressing the price compared to fossil fuels, financial incentives available, as well as state and federal government policies relating to electrification and the transition to renewable energy. We turn now to Zero Rose for more.
And uh, how about the state of uh, federal grants and uh, tax rebates and uh, some of the rollbacks in, in policy in Indiana regarding net metering and things like that? You got anything to say about the state of how encouraging the systems are on making it more affordable for people? Well, there's a few things that we can touch on there. One is that since Christney was opened up, the cost of PV has gone down 90%. And the cost of their utility bills would have gone up by 33%. So, and it made sense then. I mean, um, that library was built for less than the typical cost per square foot of a library in Indiana. Again, it was like, I thought then that, okay, this is the way everybody's going to do buildings now because we just showed that you can do this and it's affordable and it's not rocket science and anybody can build it. It's off the shelf stuff. Uh, it's real simple. You do geothermal, all electric and um, add solar. It's pretty simple. <laughs> so it's gotten simpler because the price has gotten lower. And there's there's something called uh, Sawyer's Law, where every time you uh, double the capacity, double the number of panels that you're, you're building, you reduce the cost by 20%. And we've been doing that over and over and over again for 10 years. So the cost of solar keeps going down like this. The cost of utility grid solar or grid electricity keeps going up so the decision seems to be easier all the time the state is not helping by doing away with net metering but it still makes sense i just um, installed solar at my farm and that's on a rural electric where there never was any net metering and it'll pay for itself in less than 10 years so that's still a pretty good investment it's it's one that uh, people are still seeing the the logic of that investment. And, you know, I think even people that don't install solar are looking at electrification because you can see where things are headed, that uh, combustion is pretty 19th century technology. And the further you get away from combustion, the better are you in terms of health and safety and uh, electrification seems to be the future. It's um, heading towards marginal cost and, um, it's heading in the right direction, definitely. So I think there are things the state could do to encourage more solar, um, but I think solar is going to continue to increase in terms of installation for a long time to come. And we're seeing on the industrial side, on the large scale solar, that the economics of that are even better than small scale solar. So for those folks that maybe don't have a rooftop that's facing in the right direction or a rooftop that's shaded or they're renting. I think community solar and large scale solar is going to begin, become more important and it's gonna to continue to make the grid more efficient and more renewable energy. So I encourage all of my clients to go full electric in their buildings and to anticipate the future, whether or not they plan on installing installing solar panels anytime soon. And uh, with some of those those grants to do with like the Department of Energy or it's kind of tax rebates or other foundations or organizations that, you know, like funded that library and Kristen? Yeah, in my current role working with the Environmental Resilience Institute, one of the things we are looking at is how to encourage communities to take advantage of this new federal grant money that's coming down the pike. Um, there's two major opportunities. One is the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And the other is the Inflation Reduction Act. And both of those include uh, major incentives for solar 
And the Inflation Reduction Act has um, a number of incentives for solar, including a 30% tax credit. And uh, interestingly, this time around, even if you don't pay taxes, if you're a, a nonprofit or say a, a university, uh, you can get the 30% in some other form and uh, not necessarily a tax credit. So there are direct pay rules now that allow you to take advantage of those incentives without paying taxes. There are other incentives that sort of pile up on top of that. If you are in a, uh, an energy community or if you are in a uh, former coal community or current coal community, there are additional incentives for that. And um, so we're, we're looking at how these things can pile up and, and become very attractive. There's a, the Rural Energy for America program is another program that offers loans and grants for uh, rural businesses and agricultural operations. Those can be up to 75% of the cost of the system. And you can get up to 50% of the cost of the system in the form of a grant. So, and then you can also add the tax credit on top of that. So that is an extremely attractive opportunity that we're trying to help people through that process. And um, we will have a webinar on that coming up uh, soon to tell people more about how that process works. And are there advantages to working with uh, institutions like a library? And I see you've done public schools. Do they set that up? Um, based on projected utility costs that they would otherwise incur as they're doing long-term budgeting? Well, I do think it is important to look at the life cycle cost of a system and how long is it going to last, how long is it going to pay off, uh, what might happen to the cost of other forms of energy in that lifespan. For example, um, you know, next thing I'm going to add at my place is electric vehicle. So if I'm charging my electric vehicle instead of buying fossil fuels, uh, that will accelerate the payback of my system. So what, how does that work for a small business or an agricultural operation? Are there opportunities to save there? But for a uh, library or a school, one of the biggest issues they have is their operating budget. And if, if their operating budget is being chewed up by the utility bill, that's money they can't spend on books or staffing or keeping the library open longer. So uh, libraries and schools have been particularly keen on trying to find grants and other opportunities to fund solar or uh, just a more efficient building because that lowers their operating costs and then they can spend that operating money on books and staff and teaching and learning instead of um, you know, sending it off to the utility company. So that sort of conversion um, of that operating cost using hopefully uh, grant money or donations of some sort is very important for schools and for, for libraries for that reason. For a business, obviously, um, if you can obtain grant money, it accelerates the payback. For a business, you also have rapid depreciation uh, if you're paying taxes, and uh, that can really add up in a hurry. So I think solar doesn't really make sense if you don't look at all of the tax advantages, you don't look at the ways that you're paying yourself back. If you uh, just do a straight up comparison, um, 
you're probably leaving out some very important parts of the story. So uh, I urge people to do a complete analysis of what the total picture is and how that's going to pay back over time. And again, if if there are policy changes at the state level that would bring back net metering at some point or uh, have other incentives that will continue to accelerate this uh, very fast-growing business in Indiana. And uh, if not, I think the business is going to continue to grow, uh, but at a slower rate and fewer people might take advantage of it. But I think the writing is on the wall and uh, renewable energy is here to stay. It's cheaper than fossil fuel sources and it's getting cheaper all the time. So yeah, some of the naysayers point to the life cycle of the solar uh, equipment that uh, you know they, they are dealing with issues of how to recycle it. Um, it, it what, what is the general lifespan of the solar equipment? Um, and you know, lining that up with payoff. Well, generally you can expect a 25 to 30 year lifespan of a system. They tend to be warranted that way. And um, at the end of life, there are a number of recycling companies that have sprung up over time. And I think we're going to see more of that to take advantage of the fact that um, these can be disassembled and reused, or they can simply be reused uh, by folks that are don't care about the fact that they're only getting 80% of the original power output that they may have gotten originally with new panels. So there is quite a market that's springing up with used panels. Uh, refurbished panels, and then um, I think the last resort is to taking everything apart and uh, breaking things down and reusing those components. But I don't, I don't see a trend where many of those are ending up in the landfill because of the value of the components that uh, are making up those materials. And um, I'm, I've used in a, on a couple of occasions um, bifacial panels that are glass on both sides. And uh, those have a couple of advantages. One is that they can pick up reflected light. And in the case of Christney Library, that has a, a reflective concrete slab. So the light that's reflecting off the slab is hitting the back of the panels that are also generating electricity, not as much as the front, but those bifacial panels can pick up energy from both sides, but they're pretty easy to disassemble and reassemble. And you've got those two large sheets of glass that can be reused so, uh, or recycled. So I think um, there have been a lot of ways to try to kill solar over the years. Um, one of the first ways was to say, well, what's the payback on that? And you get that all the time with an investment in solar, which I guess is a, a good question to ask. And that, that answer keeps getting better all the time. So, uh, but I always used to ask people, what's the payback on your in-ground swimming pool? or that uh, bourbon bar in the basement. Uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of money on luxuries that don't pay us back at all. It's kind of nice to have a luxury that pays you back. And um, one part of that luxury, now I think that a lot of people are looking at is that you can charge your own battery backup system. You can use the power from that battery backup system at night or when the power is off on the grid, so I think for safety and security, many people are creating their own sort of microgrid so that they can maintain their power uh, no matter what. And they can keep talking on a Zoom call like this no matter what. And um, they can find ways to keep more of their power that they're generating so they don't sell it back to the grid at a discount. 
and uh, batteries are still expensive. I think as batteries get cheaper, we're going to see a lot more of that. And um, you know, I look forward to partaking of that technology at some point in the future as well. In this episode, Marianne Iria talks about Monroe County Civic Theater, our community's only all-volunteer nonprofit theater group. MCCT is about to launch their annual Shakespeare in the Park production and is currently accepting submissions for a fall series of one-act shows and shorter pieces. This segment is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org or by emailing getconnected at bloomington.in.gov. Welcome to Activate featuring real people working for positive change in our community, encouraging you to get involved, live your passion, and make a difference. Hi, I'm Marianne Iria from Monroe County Civic Theater. Uh, Monroe County Civic Theater is the oldest community theater in Bloomington. Uh, Monroe County Civic Theater is a nonprofit organization for uh, amateurs that wish to show off their talents. Well, it's important to me because um, I have been in theater all my life, so I wanted to keep doing it. My love is dance. I danced my whole life. I've been to New York uh, and studied under Luigi uh, Dance Center there. I've always been in performance my whole life. I'm a choreographer. I did uh, My Fair Lady and Music Man. I got a part at IU Opera, and it was great. It was a wonderful experience. So I kind of just wanted to keep doing that. So I saw this Monroe County Civic Theater, and I saw that they were having auditions. And it was uh, Scrooge Variations. It was by a local playwright, and it was a farce about Christmas Carol. And we did it over here at the Fire Bay, and that was my first one. I was the ghost of Christmas past. It was really fun. It's just a wonderful feeling that uh, it's uh, ethereal. It's an ethereal feeling that you can't explain it, but when you get it, it's something that you gotta keep feeling because <laughs> it makes you feel so good. The main uh, thing that uh, Monroe County Civic Theater does, our flagship, is uh, Shakespeare in the Park that we do every year for the last 34 years at uh, 3rd Street Park, which is now Waldron Hill Busker Park. Richard III is a uh, Shakespeare in the Park production, and it's very, very uh, dramatic. <laughs> it's going to be a great show. We have a great players in it. Uh, Shakespeare in the Park, Richard III, will be performed at the Waldron Hill Buskirk Park at 331 South Washington Street in Bloomington. And uh, it will be on June 1st, June 2nd, and June 3rd from 7 to 9, and then on Sunday, June 4th, it will be from 2 to 4 matinee. Well, if you're interested in any kind of theater making or acting or singing or dancing, 
we need talent. Our talent's great, but we love newbies, rising stars. We do need people for, uh, more of tech people for sound and costuming. We could do costuming if you like. We have a costumer, she's wonderful. She always needs help, you know, with dressing people. If you like to sew or even if you like makeup or hair, they do that. Also, we have electronic technicians. Uh, we always need people for that. And uh, volunteers are, are a great spark to our organization because we love new people and to see what, what they got. <laughs> see if they got it. You can look us up online at mcct.org. We also, right now, after Shakespeare in the Park, which is Richard III, the next project is coming up in the fall. We want uh, one-act plays from uh, local or regional artists. You can submit it to Monroe County Civic Theater at the website, mcct.org, and fill out a proposal form. We take donations, and on mcct.org, you can uh, donate, push the donate button, and they have the either PayPal or uh, Venmo. It's www.mcct.org. Again, uh, I'm Marianne Irea. Monroe County Civic Theater is an all-volunteer theater group. You've been listening to Activate, true stories from friends and neighbors who stand up for what they believe in. Activate is a partnership between WFHB and the City of Bloomington Volunteer Network, working together to build a strong, healthy, and engaged community with production support from students in the media school at Indiana University. You can learn more about volunteer opportunities in the WFHB listening area online at bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org. That's bloomingtonvolunteernetwork.org.